It's an unbelievable story, and it's also not a well-known story. Frankly, the two countries were in cahoots. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Diego Garcia is a small island in the dead center of the Indian Ocean that is part of the Chagos Archipelago. In the early 1970s, the United Kingdom, which controlled the islands, leased Diego Garcia to the United States for use as a military base. However, in the process of transferring Diego Garcia to the United States, the United Kingdom forcibly expelled the island's native population and that of the surrounding Chagos Archipelago. Thousands of Chagosians were exiled from their homeland, most of whom were forced to Mauritius, which is over 2,000 kilometers away. The forced deportation of Chagosians was a crime against humanity committed 50 years ago, but it has only recently gotten its day in court. My guest today, Philippe Sands, is a famed international lawyer who has taken on the cause of righting this historic wrong. His recent book, The Last Colony, A Tale of Exile and Courage, tells the story of the Chagosian exile and the effort to secure justice for Chagos Islanders. We kick off our conversation with a brief history of the island before we discuss the series of legal victories in both British courts and at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. These victories have led to final negotiations underway to support the return of Chagosians to their homeland. The story of the Chagosian exile is a human rights saga that generally flies under the radar, although not under our radar here at Global Dispatches. This is the second time that we've visited this issue. A few years back, I interviewed a Chagosian about his experience fighting for the return to his homeland. And in my conversation with Philippe Sands, we referenced that past conversation. So a big thank you to our premium subscribers, both on the podcast and via the newsletter, who provide us with the financial support we require to keep a spotlight on these undercovered global stories. Thank you. We cannot do this without you. Please do join our community of supporters. You can do so by visiting globaldispatches.org or 
directly in Apple Podcasts. And if you are listening in Spotify, you can follow the links to our premium feed and support us through there. Thank you. It's deeply meaningful and helps us keep on keeping on. Now here is my conversation with Philippe Sands. Can you describe these circumstances in which Chagossians were forcibly displaced from their land? You have to go back to the 1960s. It was the era of decolonization. Many countries were gaining their independence after European colonial rule. And the UN adopted a resolution on the right of self-determination and decolonization. Against that background, the British government was under pressure to grant independence to the colony of Mauritius, which had been its possession since 1814. In that context, the Americans decided that they rather liked one of the 58 islands of the Chagos archipelago in the Indian Ocean that was part of the colony of Mauritius. Could they use it as a communications facility was the initial way it was put. The British said, sure, they were sort of under pressure. They hadn't participated in Vietnam and Harold Wilson's Labour government was, I think, under pressure to do something. So they agreed they'd cut a deal with the Americans, give them the base. But the logic of that position meant that they decided to detach the entire Chagos archipelago from Mauritius, 58 islands, 650,000 square kilometers, and create a new colony, which they would call the British Indian Ocean Territory, Biot. And that happened in November 1965. To do that under pressure, they cut a deal with leaders from Mauritius. Mauritius would get its independence, but only if the leadership agreed to allow the British to keep the Chagos archipelago, their last new colony. Can I just interject how wild it is from a historical point of view that in this era of decolonization, the British government creates a brand new colony? It's an unbelievable story, and it's also not a well-known story. Frankly, the two countries were in cahoots. They went together to the UN and they got it past the UN, or they never fully passed the UN, on the basis of a lie. What the British told the United Nations was that there was no population on the Chagos archipelago, no permanent inhabitants. Now, that was not true. There were about 2,000 people living on the islands, and they'd lived there for generations. They were mostly black people who were descended from enslaved people, and they'd lived there for generations. And the logic of the British position, based on its reading of international law, was that if there was no population, they could do this. What they then did between 1968 and 1973 was remove the entire population. It was a forcible deportation to present the reality of the fiction they'd created, that there was no population. So it is, I think, utterly scandalous. And anyone who now reads the story has the same reaction, how on earth did this happen? It's quite interesting. The Americans only wanted one island on which there were three or 400 inhabitants. And they basically said, no, no, you don't need to get rid of people on the rest. All we need cleared is Diego Garcia. But the logic of the British government position was that in order to dismember the whole of the Chagos archipelago, they had to get rid of absolutely everyone. So that was the way in which they proceeded. 
So between 1968 and 1973, presumably to make room for this U.S. military base that the British government was leasing to the United States, the British forcibly deported 2,000 inhabitants of the Chagos Archipelago. Where did they go and how did they do this deportation? The deportation was effected by a group of British personnel, civilians, and military turning up on the islands over a period of five years and informing the inhabitants that they would have to leave the next day. I mean, I've had one account in particular that becomes the central feature of my book, The Last Colony, is by Lisbeth Elysee, who just describes how at the end of April, on a single day, she saw something she'd never seen on her island before. The island is called Peros Banos. There were about 400 people living there. And she saw a white man. And the white man came up to her and said, Madam, you will have to leave tomorrow and you're allowed to take one suitcase. The island is being closed. And that was the way in which it was done. In fact, it started a little earlier with Diego Garcia. When people left Diego Garcia, for example, to go to Mauritius, which is about a thousand miles away, for medical treatment, they were not allowed to then come back. They were told there were no boats. And so that was step one. Step two was the removal of people from Diego Garcia to other islands. And step three was the removal of the entire population from all the other islands. Not a happy story. And so most of those who were deported forcibly went to Mauritius. Did they create like a kind of Chagosian community in Mauritius? I mean, we're not talking about a huge number of people, but still, you know, not an insignificant number of people, 2,000. Well, I mean, Mauritius is not a big country. Its population today is only around a million, and it was less back in the early 70s. And so at that point, they had just come into independence. So to have the entire population of these islands suddenly basically dumped on their doorstep by the British was a problem. And the Mauritians had lots of other things to address. They did not, I think, react as one would today if such a thing happened exactly with open arms. And so I think it was very difficult for the Chagossian population. They described the circumstances of their arrival, living in really very dismal conditions, work being very difficult. Some of them decided to go elsewhere. Some went to the Seychelles, another set of islands nearby, and some, very few, went to the United Kingdom. And over time, more and more have gone to the United Kingdom. So those are now the three places where the Chagossian community live. It's grown. We're into the fourth, fifth generation. So the original 2,000 people, there are several hundred left from that original population. But of course, there are many thousands now of descendants. So years ago, I had a Chagossian, Olivier Banku, on the program. And you know, one thing that stuck with me, this interview must have been almost 10 years ago at this point, was how the community sought to keep their native Chagossian culture alive, primarily through food and cooking. And it was one of the ways in which a community living in exile was able to maintain a culture, even as that culture was so directly informed and influenced by the land from which it came. And just that conversation has stuck with me ever since. Well, that's very resonant for me. The Chagossians mostly speak Creole, which is a sort of mix of French and various other languages. And I've come to know the community very well from being involved in these cases. And food and song, I would say, remain a very central part of their existence. The main character in my book, Lisbeth Elysee, who was the main witness 
in the proceedings at the International Court of Justice, when I eat at her house, she cooks the most wonderful Chagossian foods, octopus stew being her personal favorite, and then music. Their anthem is a song called Perros Verts, the lyrics of which are in Creole, sort of French, and they tell a story of you know a black community dispossessed from their islands and their desire to go back. So the culture has been kept very alive. It's it's a rather remarkable community. When did legal efforts to correct this historic injustice begin in earnest? Well, they began in earnest in the 70s and in the 80s, and a number of Chagossians brought proceedings in the English courts. Olivier Bancou, who you've just mentioned, in fact, led many of those cases and was partly successful. The cases are known sort of in English legal parlance as Bancou number one, Bancou number two, Bancou number three, and so on and so forth. In the end, he was not successful in getting what he really wanted, which was a right to return. But in reaching that point, he nevertheless was very successful in obtaining documents, archives, and those would become critically important when the case moved to the international stage. One of the things that is truly remarkable about Olivier Boncou, I mean, I've worked with him for more than a decade, and at a certain point, quite recently, just a year or two ago, I said to him, Olivier, where did you get your legal skills from? I mean, how did you find the knowledge? Where did you go to law school? And he just looked at me and said, Philippe, I'm not a lawyer, I'm an electrician. And he is a really remarkable individual, self-taught in the law, and he's done remarkable things. So you had proceedings in British courts that, you know, as you noted, yielded some results, but nothing close to the right to return. When and how, and what were the circumstances in which this case moved to the International Court of Justice? Well, in fact, Olivier Boncou had had a major success in the early 2000s, or 2000 or so, when he did get a judgment of an English court declaring they had a right to return. And then the events of September the 11th happened. And the British government under Tony Blair changed direction and overturned the ruling of the courts, in part because the base at Diego Garcia retained even greater importance. The Mauritian government has long argued from the pulpit of the General Assembly and at the UN that they have sovereignty over the whole of the Chagos archipelago, but they only invoked legal proceedings in 2010. I received a phone call in April of that year from the Prime Minister of Mauritius asking whether I would help to put together a legal team to bring proceedings to international courts against the United Kingdom, basically to devise a legal strategy. It wasn't self-evident back then what we could achieve, but we identified a number of ways to begin what we knew was going to be a long-term process. And we started under the Law of the Sea Convention with a case in the autumn of 2010, basically a declaration that the British government's effort to create a vast marine protected area was illegal because Mauritius hadn't been consulted. We took that case and we won that case, and that declared the marine protected area illegal, but it did not address the question of sovereignty over the Chagos archipelago. So at the time of that award, 2015, that matter remained open. And then at what point did, following that ruling in 2015, a more direct, say, confrontation between Mauritius and the United Kingdom take place over 
sovereignty claims of Chagos? Well, it was already pending. It was raised in the Law of the Sea case, but the tribunal said they didn't have jurisdiction. Then in 2015, there was a change of government in Mauritius. I mean, these things happen in really curious ways. One thing that was very significant about the arbitral award, there were five arbitrators. Three voted in the majority that the tribunal didn't have jurisdiction to say anything over sovereignty over Chagos. But there were two in the minority, two dissenters, and they said, no, we do have jurisdiction. And you know what? Mauritius has sovereignty. What happened in the 1960s was illegal under international law, violated the right of self-determination, violated the rules on decolonization. They were not the majority, but very often in life, you learn that minority judgments point the way to the future. And the prime minister, the new prime minister of Mauritius by then in 2015, read those dissenting opinions and said, you know what? I am instructing you to go to the International Court of Justice in The Hague, the principal judicial organ of the United Nations. Get me there by hook or by crook. The only way we could get there was by way of an advisory opinion of the General Assembly. It would require Mauritius to persuade the General Assembly to send questions on sovereignty over the Chagos Archipelago to the International Court of Justice. And that meant taking on the British and the Americans directly. I mean, it was a real David and Goliath situation in which, you know, Mauritius population, one million, a small African country, well-resourced, smart people, was taking on two permanent members of the Security Council. So it was not evident that we would get through. But in very large part, I think Mauritius was assisted by a totally unexpected development in June 2016, that is to say Brexit. And what happened with Brexit was dramatic. I mean, Britain's international reputation you know, fell off the edge of a cliff, and it lost many of its allies. All the EU states said, hey, you've left the European Union. It's not our problem anymore. You're on your own. So by the time the matter came to the General Assembly in June 2017, the Assembly voted overwhelmingly against the United Kingdom and sent an advisory opinion to the court. And that was it. By that point, Mauritius was up before the International Court of Justice, and the proceedings really then began. And how did those proceedings unfold? What was the result? Well, they unfolded fabulously well for Mauritius and catastrophically for Britain and the United States. There were various rounds of written pleadings. Many countries intervened from across the world, mostly on the side of Mauritius and the African Union. This was one of the very first times the African Union voted as a bloc and participated as a bloc in the proceedings. The oral hearings were in September 2018. The most dramatic aspect of the hearings really was the participation of a single witness, Lisby Elysee, who described to the judges what had happened to her and how she wished to return. Six months later, we went back to The Hague, the Great Hall of Justice, and got, in effect, a unanimous ruling by the International Court of Justice. There was only one dissent, the American judge, a very fine judge, Joan Donoghue, who dissented not on the merits, but on the jurisdiction of the court. But everyone else basically said what happened in 1965-66 was illegal, that essentially the crucial question was, did Mauritius grant consent to the dismemberment of its territory? And the court said it did not. It was duress, and therefore there was no real consent, and the views of the population, including the Chagossians, were not had proper regard to. And the court ordered the United Kingdom to leave the Chagos Archipelago forthwith. I mean, I do a lot of cases at the International Court, 
it was as dramatic a day as I can remember in a 35-year career at the court. Yet, as we speak, Chagossians are still not back in their homeland. So where does the process of the actual return of Chagos to Mauritius stand at the moment? So after the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice, the matter went back to the General Assembly, which voted overwhelmingly. I think only four countries in the world supported the United Kingdom and the United States in opposing the resolution that the Chagos archipelago was part of Mauritius, that the Chagossians had a right to return immediately, and that the United Kingdom must leave by the end of November 2019. The United Kingdom did not leave. The United Kingdom decided to dig in its heels. So what happened next was that Mauritius designed a strategy to take account of that. It did a number of things. Firstly, it brought legal proceedings against the Maldives back for case number three at the Tribunal for the Law of the Sea to obtain a ruling that the advisor opinion had binding legal effects in terms of the determination that Mauritius was sovereign and Mauritius had a maritime boundary with the Maldives. And that case was brought and was won by Mauritius. Second thing that happened is the Mauritian government decided for the first time in its entire history to visit the Chagos archipelago. It chartered a vessel. 25 people were on that vessel, led by five Chagossians. I had the privilege of being on board. And we went to the Chagos archipelago with a few journalists, which was very significant because I think the video footage, the film from the BBC and The Guardian Atlantic magazine, there's a particularly wonderful article in The Atlantic by Cullen Murphy, he was on the trip, just brought this story to a wider audience. And then in the meantime, I had spent a year or so essentially as an act of literary advocacy, writing a book to bring the British failure to have regard to the advisory opinion to a wider audience. That was published in September 2022. And then in November 2022, the British government changed position and announced it was going to start negotiations with Mauritius to resolve this matter on the basis of international law, essentially a nod to the advisory opinion of the International Court. And since November, negotiations have been underway between Britain and Mauritius to resolve the matter. And so presumably, the outcome of those negotiations, which began in November 2022, would be the ability of Chagossians to physically return to their land. Is that right? Indeed. I mean, the basic approach of Mauritius has always been that it has sovereignty over the Chagos archipelago. The Chagossians can return immediately. The British-American base at Diego Garcia remains, and the entire area will be the subject of environmental protections because it is a pristine and remarkable environment. And of course, the Chagossians there, I think, would have a very big role in the stewardship of a an area they know better than anyone, and they know how to look after it. So that's what essentially the negotiations are about. And it's just a question, I think, of, you know, watch this space. We will see what happens in due course. I mean, if initially the Chagossians were forcibly removed from Diego Garcia specifically to make room for a U.S. military base. Like, Why can't the military base simply coexist with a local population as military bases do around the world? Well, that's the position of Mauritius and the position of the Chagossians. 
but not the position of the United States. Well, I mean, the position, it'll be for the United States to say what its position is. I think there's been a few public statements by the Foreign Office about the conduct of the negotiations and the position of the United States. I'll just say that, you know, speaking personally, I'm hopeful that this matter could be resolved in such a way as to allow Lisby Elise, Olivier Bancou, and any Chagossian who wants to go back to do so in the reasonably near future. I just wonder if, as you said, back in 2001, there seemed to be real momentum towards a just solution here, but 9-11 upended that. You wonder now, with you know this being a strategic location in increasing geopolitical tensions between the United States and China and just directly center in the Indian Ocean, if like another kind of exogenous emergency arises that may upend the negotiations that you're currently in, in a way not dissimilar to what happened in 2001, if that's like an ongoing concern? Well, I mean, we all know you better than anyone is extremely experienced in these matters, that there are always unexpected developments that come and that one cannot predict. So maybe that is indeed what will happen. I mean, I remember the events, of course, of September the 11th very well. I was actually in New York at the time. I was teaching at NYU Law School. And so I remember how dramatic that day was. Of course, we knew there would be consequences straight away. I didn't know anything much about Chagos. My knowledge of that only came later. In fact, my knowledge of Chagos really began in 2003. It was also in the context of the events of September the 11th, because as you know, very regrettably in my view, Britain and the United States decided to go to war against Iraq and rid it of weapons of mass destruction that it did not have. The bombing of Iraq actually began from Diego Garcia. And so the point that you make obviously has a certain resonance. And of course, a few years later, it emerged that Diego Garcia may also have been used as a black site for the transportation of people who were being extraordinarily rendered. So, you know, Diego Garcia, I think it's well known, has an important role for the United States and the United Kingdom. And I think one has to hope that unexpected developments don't occur. But as you say, life is full of surprises. Finally, as far as these things go, you're like a, a pretty famous international human rights lawyer. Why, of all the issues in the world, have you decided to take on this case, not just as a, a lawyer, but as an outspoken champion as well? Well, that's very generous of you to say. You know, I'm a barrister and we have cases thrown at us. I'm in a fortunate position that I don't have to take on everything. I, I can be a little bit picky. Back in 2010, the then Mauritian Prime Minister, Mr. Ramgulam, called me up out of the blue. I didn't have any word that it was coming. And to be honest, when he started talking about Chagos, I didn't know what Chagos was. Then he said, Diego Garcia, Mr. Sands, Diego Garcia. And I said, oh, okay, I know about that place. And I said to him, Prime Minister, let, let me just go and have a little think about it and let me read myself in. And I went off and I did some research and discovered to my horror the story that we've been talking about. And I was amazed. I, you know, I was 50 years old at the time. I'd never really focused on this story. How could it have been that I'd missed it? And what I really have come to understand, and I describe it in my book, is how I'm part of that generation in which British colonial history was basically scrubbed out 
of our education. Britain does not focus on its colonial past. It does not focus on those bad stories like any country which it has been involved in. And so we never learned very much about the British Empire, how colonialism came to an end, or these or other dreadful stories. And so frankly, I felt sort of embarrassed and slightly ashamed that I didn't know about it. And against that background, I said, sure. One of the things that is interesting, and I want to give Britain real credit for this, it's one of the few countries, if not the only country in the world, where it has no problem with its own nationals acting against it before international courts and tribunals. You know, I've done many cases against the UK. This one's against the UK. Not all countries are like that. I'm also a French national. I once acted against France before the International Court of Justice. That was back in 1995 on a case about nuclear weapons. And I think the French Quai d'Orsay, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in France, has never forgiven me. I was once told that a Frenchman never acts against the interests of the French state. Britain, thankfully, has a much more open mind and spirit, respects the independence of lawyers. And I'm very grateful of that and actually rather proud of that. So there's always a silver lining in relation to some of these rather unfortunate stories. Well, Philippe, we'll have to have you back on the show after these negotiations between Britain and Mauritius conclude, presumably in favor of the Chagosians. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I thank you for your time. And of course, that would be a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.